The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. All right, so I'm going to surprise you a little bit. I'm going to tell you today that um, I want you to be jealous. You need to be jealous. So does anybody make, does anybody sound a little, does that sound strange to anyone? You're like, hey, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was wrong. Well, let me phrase it like this. Is there anything so precious to you that you think it's worth fighting for? Of course, right? And what is it? Think about it for a moment. What is it? You know, one way to answer that question might be, what would the people closest to you say that you're ready and willing to fight for? So right there, we have to kind of admit that we don't always fight for the, wrong thi- for the right things, right? We don't always fight for the right things. We don't always fight in the right way. But given that, is there anything really good, really precious that you think it's worth fighting for? Let me bet for a lot of you, uh, it wasn't a thing that was worth fighting for. It was a person. Wasn't it? It was a person. There's somebody so precious to you, you care about them so much. Um, maybe it's a, a spouse or a friend or a child or a sibling. If you had a strong sense that somebody was trying to mess with them, manipulate them, harm them, um, even the most mellow of us, that could pull out the lion inside, right? If somebody was messing with the one that you love. So you could say in that moment that you're jealous for that person. You think uh, to you, they're so valuable that they deserve protection, they, they deserve preservation, and you're willing because you love them to see that they get it. You're, you're jealous for their health. You're jealous for what's good for them because you care. The reason I'm framing it this way is because this is exactly what we have in 2 Corinthians. And um, this is the section we're looking at, looking at today is probably the heart, maybe even, of both letters, First and 2 Corinthians. Paul, we heard it, right? He's professing his jealousy for this church. He's not jealous of the church. He's jealous for the church. They're important to him. And they're in danger. They're in trouble. Um, things are a mess, so he's concerned. And what is he willing to do? They're in danger. He's concerned. What's he willing to do? He's willing to put up a fight. He's willing to stand up and try to make a difference because, because why? Because he loves them. Because he loves them. So here's why this is, this is so important. As we walk through this passage, we're going to see the dangers facing the Corinthian church. And I think, I hope we'll see, they're not that different from the dangers that we face every day. The dangers those we love face. So we're going to think about these dangers that they're facing. Then we're going to learn from Paul's example. We want to watch how he deals with this church and the dangers that they face. We want to see what he's doing and how and why. We want to learn from that ourselves. And all that should add up to courage to be jealous for beautiful things when they're in danger like he was. We're not apostles. We don't do things exactly like he, like he did. But there's, there's something that should stir in us. We should have the same jealousy that Paul had. 
and put up the same kind of fight when needed. Does that make sense? This is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at the dangers, Paul's example, and our own fight. And the point is that we would have courage to be jealous. So here we go. First thing is dangers, right? What are, what are the main dangers facing this church? Uh, if you've been walking through the letter, you can probably guess, but it's right here in the passage as well. Look with me at verse 4. One danger we see, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a what? A different gospel. So what's one danger? They're not hanging on to the gospel. They're flirting with different gospels. So one danger is starting to, to receive or accept or believe or trust in a different gospel. That's one danger. Wouldn't you agree? What's the other danger? Look at verse 3. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from what? A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So what's the second danger? Not being devoted to Jesus. Not being devoted to Jesus. So one danger is false gospel. Different danger is losing devotion to Jesus. So just think with me for a moment. If this is the great danger, doesn't that tell you what Paul thinks about what's of great importance? The most dangerous thing, the thing you're worried about the most will show you what you value the most, and we've seen it in 1 Corinthians, we've seen it all over his letters. And so to sum it up like this, the danger is going to show us what's most important, okay? And here's what's most important to the apostle, and it should be most important to us if we're Christians. Number one, the most important thing in our lives is the gospel of Jesus and our response to it. The most important thing is the gospel of Jesus and our response to it. So let's remember the gospel. What does gospel mean, that word? Remember? Good news. Good news. Good news. So what is this news that we have that is so sweet we can say, this is the best news there is? The best news there is. What is it? Well, it comes down to the person of Jesus Christ, right? Let's remember the bad news. Um, we've rebelled against God, haven't we? We've rebelled against God, God is good and holy and wonderful, made a wonderful earth, a place for us to live, made human beings in his image, to know him, to love him, to thrive uh, in their relationship with him. We wouldn't have it, right? We raised the middle finger of our hearts, um, and we said, no, thank you. We bought, as Paul says here, the lie of Satan that God isn't good, that his word's not trustworthy, and he needs to be replaced and so we've replaced the real God with pretend gods, false gods, and it's usually ourselves. I want to do what I want to do. So that's what we call sin, rebellion, right? And because of that sin, we face the penalty of death. There's death uh, consequentially. In other words, we mess everything up. Anybody have broken relationships in or around your life? I thought we were all good people. How come all these good people can't get along? I'd like to test the theory on how good we are. We've, we've messed things up desperately. So there's, there's death in that sense, but there's also death in, in the justice sense. God is the judge of the earth. He and his character are the standard of good and evil, right and wrong. 
And, and we've sinned against him, and we deserve, like, like any criminal in a courtroom, all the evidence has shown we're guilty, and we deserve a just punishment. So we're in trouble. The, the good news starts with the reality of the bad news. We're broken from our relationship with God. We deserve justice. So now I'm ready for good news, aren't you? Jesus. God is so gracious and so kind and so merciful. He sent his very son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus took on human flesh, walked in our shoes, knows what it's like to suffer, to be alone, to be, to, be, uh, to be mocked, to be betrayed. He knows what it's like, and yet he lived a perfect life, complete love of God and his neighbor, perfect. And he died on the cross for our sins. Look how Paul summed up the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5.21. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. We walk through it with me just for a moment. What are the first three words? For our sake. What does that mean? That means God loves the undeserving. You didn't deserve this kind of love. But this thing he's going to do, he did it out of love. It's for our sake. He loves us. If you think you're too bad, too evil, too lost... Too rebellious to be loved by God? Um, it's not true because Jesus is such a great Savior. For our sake, for our sake, what? He made him to be sin who knew no sin. The first, he is the Father. The second, uh, he or him, the Father made him, Jesus, to be sin. Now, did Jesus know when he sinned? Did he ever sin in his own heart and his own mind? Did he ever commit a sin? Never once. I read a poll not too long ago about how way too many Christians think Jesus sinned. So let's just clear this up. Did Jesus sin ever once? No, no. And by the way, if he did, then the whole ship is sinking, okay? This is not going to work. He didn't sin, and that really sets him apart. If you just consider every other religious leader, to my knowledge, none of the ones that have any credibility at all ever said that they never sinned. They all said, hey, let me show you the way to live. And Jesus said, hey, guess what? I am the way. He never sinned. And so here's what's holy and terrible and awesome about this. The Father made him who knew no sin to what? Become sin. Jesus was treated like all my sin deserved to be treated. And all the sin of anyone who ever trusted him deserved to be treated. And there's some Christians who've done some gnarly things. You ever thought about this? There are some Christians who've done some gnarly things. Number one, if we all just open the skeletons in our closet, let's not do that. But let's just agree, okay? That, that'd be bad enough for Jesus to be treated like our sin. <clears throat> then you think of somebody like John Newton. He wrote a song you may have heard of, Amazing Grace. Remember what his career path was? Slave trader. Slave trader. He owned the boat and put people in the boat. And, and God knows what those situations were like and what happened to those people. What kind of a sinner is John Newton? What does he deserve for a life like that? That's why he writes it. Amazing grace. How what? How sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me. And any Christian can join in and say, me too. God made him 
who knew no, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in, in him, when you trust Jesus, you get connected to Jesus, who he is and what he's done, it belongs to you. You're tied to him by faith, so that in him, what do we get to become? The righteousness of God, the righteousness is the beauty of God's character, and in Christ, we are counted as righteous. Can't you get a smile on your face about this? I deserved to go to hell, and God looks at me and says, you're perfect. It's like you always did it right. It's like you never did it wrong. And we're like, how, how can you say that? It's so far from the truth. Well, it is, the, it is far from the truth if he's looking at you. But guess, at, guess who he's looking at in your place? He's looking at Jesus so that in Jesus you are righteous. And this is the gospel. You get it freely. You don't have to do anything to earn it. It's simply by grace alone, through faith. You trust him, it's yours. So this is the gospel. It's the news of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's most important. Don't you think it's most important? What's more important than that? There's not anything more important than that. The second thing that's most important is our response to the gospel. It's our response. Now, I want to make it clear. Your response to the gospel is not the gospel. Is it good news that you can believe and put faith in Jesus? All of a sudden, faith can be a work. Do you believe enough? Do you believe perfectly enough? Is it good news what you do? What we do is never the good news, okay? It's not going to be enough. The good news is what Jesus has done. But it obviously calls for a response. What did Jesus say? Repent and believe. Turn to me. Trust me. It calls for a response. Turn away from other kings, other gods, other lords. Turn to me. Trust me. Trust me. And you see, the, you see this response in verse 3. Paul is concerned that this church will turn away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. But we see there what the response to the gospel is and should be. When you hear the news of Jesus, when you trust him, when you see him for who he is, what is it going to bring out in you? Devotion. Everybody say that word, devotion. Devotion. I don't mean 20 minutes in the morning you reading your Bible, having your devotions. Although that's what this is for. Christians who know Jesus and what he's done for them, what does the Spirit fill our hearts with? What happens to us? We want to be devoted to Jesus. Jesus said, you love me because I loved you first. When, when you see his love, it's just, you want to say, I'm yours, whatever you want. Anytime, any place, Jesus, I'm yours. My life's a blank check. Here you go. It's written out to you. After what you've done for me, who you are, I'm yours. Devotion. Devotion means you want to please him. You want to be with him. You love him. You can't wait till he comes back. He, he defines everything in your life. It's all for him. So the two most important things in the world, the gospel, what God has done for you in Jesus. Number two, your response. Do you, just pause for a moment. I just said those are the two most important things in the world. Only you know your heart with God. Do, do you get this? Do you see this? Do you want this? Maybe for some of us, we've heard it enough times that we kind of forgot and we're like, oh yeah, that's right. I got it. That's what, that's what this is all about. Maybe some of you, you're, you've never heard this before or you're, you're a stranger to it and you think, can I get in this? Yes, you can get in this. Who's the gospel for? Anybody who wants it, 
If you want it, it's for you. You can have it now. Trust Jesus. Be devoted to him. Okay, that's most important. Then what's the danger? It only makes sense. What's the danger? You start to trust a different gospel, and when that happens, you begin to lose your what? Your devotion to Jesus. You trust a different gospel, you lose your devotion to Jesus. Look at verses three to four. This is what Paul's talking about. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul's remembering that story back in Genesis, right? Eve herself complained to God, the serpent deceived me. He gave me a different good news. For Eve, the different good news was, you can do this yourself. Trust yourself. You got this. It's all you. Do you ever hear that in today's world? Look within to find the answers. Look within. Look within. You can find what you need in, in the way you feel. Follow your feelings. Trust yourself. Okay, what are we seeing already? First of all, that is a gospel claim. The good news. Hope for life. You. That is a gospel claim. Is it true or false? Now listen, the best part of every lie is the part about it that's true. Do you have some talent, some skills? Do you have some wisdom? Have you done some cool things? Yeah, nobody's, nobody's saying you're a train wreck. You, you got good things. But should you trust ultimately in yourself? And if you look at the evidence of it, it's just patently ridiculous. Anybody ever made a mistake? You ever really screwed things up and you thought, woo, I should watch out next time. How, are, how in the world are we writing a narrative where it's like, I should look to myself all the time? I mean, really? How blind do we have to be? Well, that's why it's called deception. That's why it's called deception. It's a false gospel. And it still happens today. False gospels are screaming at us all the time from everywhere. Find your ultimate hope, your ultimate meaning, your joy, your identity, your truth from something, anything other than Jesus and who he is and what he's done. It's, it's everywhere. It's the TV preacher. It's your college professor. Sometimes it's our parents. It's music videos. It's cultural expectations. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. But I want to show you two, two major trends here of this false gospel. Two major trends. It's in Corinthians. It's in our lives. This is the danger. So Paul is obviously talking about these false apostles. They've come and they're trying to deceive his church. And so commentators, historians, we're all asking, what are, the, what are these folks like? What is this different gospel that they're teaching? We don't know with pinpoint, 100% accuracy what they were teaching. But we have a good guess. And as you read through 2 Corinthians, if you want to do this on your own time and remember it all, Paul's constantly making a distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so we'll remember that but Paul, some, of, some of Paul's biggest enemies right out there on the Apostle Tour, you read Galatians, you read the book of Acts, some of his biggest enemies are the Jesus plus people. Just to keep you awake, go ahead and say Jesus plus. Jesus plus, false gospel. 
Jesus plus. In Galatians, the Jesus plus people say, to be right with God, you got to have Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus. And the plus is always something that's been good at some point. Did God, who, who made up the idea of circumcision for the Abrahamic covenant? That was God. There, there was a time, right, to obey God. That, that's the road you follow. And, but they said, now the gospel, the good news is Jesus but that's not quite enough. His life, his death, his resurrection, it's not quite enough to make you right with God. It's Jesus plus, Jesus plus circumcision. That's what Paul's favorite boxing partners would say. And Paul says very plainly, that is a false gospel, Jesus plus. I'm going to be really frank. Part of the reason I have problems with a Roman Catholic church is what's their gospel usually? Jesus plus to be right with God, it's Jesus plus. You gotta have something the church does or you gotta have your own good works. To be right with him, or you better have the, the master, it's Jesus plus. Okay, but now we've looked outside, let's look inside. We got any Jesus pluses in our hearts? To really be a Christian, you need to be a Jesus, you need to have Jesus, plus you need to be a Democrat. You need to have Jesus, plus you need to be a Republican. That, that's out there right now. And that is a false gospel. Or it's Jesus plus, you better belong to the right denomination. That's a false gospel. Or it's Jesus plus, you have to speak in tongues. That's a false gospel. Or it's Jesus plus, you have to sing hymns on organs. That's a false gospel. Jesus plus anything to make you right with God. What is it? That's false. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. But we do it to ourselves, too, in our hearts. How do you know Jesus loves you today? You're going through a hard time in life, and your faith is wavering, and you think, I, I haven't followed him like I should. He must not love me. What did you just preach to yourself? You just preached to yourself, Jesus plus a perfect faith in all situations. That is a false gospel. We do it all the time. Jesus, I didn't do my devotions like I should. Hey, listen, should you do devotions? Yeah, but is that the gospel? God's the love of the world, gave his only son, whoever believes in him, and has a stand-up devotional life. <laughs> should not perish, but have eternal life. No, no. False gospel. Here's what happens, and, and, and the human heart does it all the time in, in countless ways. We, come, we, we bring it naturally to the table. We got little inner Pharisees trying to make ourselves right with God with something other or extra than Jesus. Grace alone's not enough, our hearts say. We gotta constantly preach ourselves Jesus is the gospel. But if we, when, the more we buy this, because I said earlier, the more you flirt with a false gospel, what's gonna happen to your devotion to Jesus? Okay? If you can make yourself right with God by your performance, how much do you need Jesus? You don't. He's a helper, he gives you a boost. He's not a savior, okay? Not only that, if your heart begins to buy this Jesus plus, are you gonna feel safe with Jesus, loved by Jesus, that you can trust him, or are you gonna feel like he's always looking at you something like this? Is that what he's doing all the time? He sees you walking around, you come to church, you try something, you did your devotions, your mind wanders. You know, you did, you're like, oh, I had this great prayer time. You look at your watch and you're like, that was four minutes. 
Does, does Jesus look at you and just go? Here's the thing. If your heart, if your heart buys onto a false gospel, you will, your devotion to Jesus will shrink because you won't be amazed by his love for you. And then, therefore, serving him will be like a burden. You'll feel like a slave. And so you might serve him out of duty or to earn a place, but you won't do it out of a pure and sincere devotion because you don't trust him. His love for you doesn't amaze you. Do you see why this is so important? The most important thing is the gospel and our response to it. And one enemy that's always going to come is the false gospel of religion. Everybody say religion. That's Jesus plus to make you right with God. It's false. It's false. And by the way, that's every other religion in the world. The second false gospel, and it's the other problem with Corinth. Corinth was like probably the uh, Vegas, Vegas plus New York City of the ancient world. Okay? It's not uncommon to have a work orgy for your idol god in Corinth. Orgies, wealth, comfort, status. And what did they value in their teachers? That comes out in this passage. They valued rhetoric, which is like pizzazz. It's bling, it's production value. It's fanciness, it's smoke, it's mirrors, it's, it's um, entertainment. And so the second false gospel is that of, what do you wanna call it? If we're being uh, theologians, we might call it worldliness. The Bible calls it worldliness. I kind of want to be careful with that term because it gives you the idea that everything God has made in the world is bad or evil and we should run from it. Uh, I don't think that. Worldliness is really a worldview that values things um, without a sense of God in the picture at all. So for instance, uh, in Corinth, right, um, they valued sex in a twisted and crooked way. But for Christians, you know, what do you think? Sex, good or bad? I'm going to go with good on that. Who made it, by the way? God. But when we move God out of the picture, all of a sudden what happens to this thing that God has made? It's twisted. It's broken. It's misused. Money. Is money bad? Uh, Money is a way to bless and love and serve people. Money is good. Wealth is good to to take something and build it and make it beautiful and add value to it. That's what it means to be in the image of God. It's good. It's good. God made it. It's good. But when we kick God out of the picture, now what happens? Now it's greed. Now it's abuse. Now it's an idol of its own. Jesus said you can't have two masters. Pick one, God or money. You're either going to serve God and use money or you're going to serve money and use God. That's the second false gospel, worldliness, or just comfort, just comfort. And here's how it gets Christians. I mean, think about the Corinthians, right? Paul's going to have to correct them. We're going to see in a couple weeks that they haven't repented of some of these behaviors. What's amazing is they're still going to church. They're still going to church. They're still singing the songs. They're still meeting together, but they're not feeling any conviction about wanting to obey the Lord, So what is that? 
It's a fault. If the first one, the false gospel of a religion, was, was a false um, message about how to be right with God, this one is a false message about the response to the gospel. A real response to the gospel comes out in devotion. Jesus, everything is for you. Everything. But a, a, a twisted view of devotion is going to mean, well, it's what you and I call hypocrisy. Right? Hypocrisy. We say one thing, we live another thing. We sing great songs, but when it comes to actual devotion, I guess here's the question. Who owns your heart? What do you live for? What do you want? What do you really want? And don't just give the Sunday school answer. For you sitting here right now, what gets your mind, your hopes, your, your pleasures, your passion? You want this. What is it? Who is it? And be honest with yourself. Take your pulse. Is it really Jesus? And if, if you're saying, I don't know, there's this. Now test that gospel statement. Your heart says, oh, but if you have this, you'll really be happy. Yeah, Jesus forgave you for your sins, but this is what life is all about. Do you see what's happening there already in our hearts and minds? We're starting to believe a false gospel and our devotion to Jesus shrinks. All right, I hope I've made my point. What's the most important thing? The gospel in our response. And so because that's the most important thing, what's the dangers we face? False gospels that diminish our devotion to Jesus. The more you see and love the real gospel, the more you will be devoted to him. The more we flirt with false gospels and trust them, the more our devotion will decrease. Does that make sense? So the first question already, you should be jealous. Are you jealous for your own heart when it comes to the gospel and your response to it? The Corinthians were lazy, man. They were just flirting with uh, false gospels, false responses. Paul's like, wake up. And so the first lesson for us is, are, are you awake to what's going on in your heart, in your mind? Let's look now at Paul's example. Paul's example, how does he respond? Well, first of all, Verse 1, I wish you'd bear with me in a little foolishness. What Paul means here by foolishness is he's going to have to basically promote himself as a legitimate apostle. And he doesn't really want to play his own trumpet. But he has to for the sake of this church. Because if they don't trust him, guess what? They're going to trust somebody else. And it's going to lead him to a false gospel and destruction. He needs them to trust him as their apostle. So he's got to, he calls it foolishness. He's got to say, hey, these are why, this is why you should trust me. And then he says, this is why I'm going to do this, you guys. And really, we could say, this is why he wrote both letters to the church. This is it right here in verse 2. What does Paul feel for this church? I feel a divine jealousy for you. I'm jealous for your heart, Paul says. And then he uses this as illustration, since I betrothed you the one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He uses an ancient world example. Um, back in the day, your engagement or your betrothal was pretty much as official as marriage. It's still probably important in our day, but you can break it off. It hurts, no harm, no foul. It's not divorce. Back then, a betrothal, is, it's nearly like a divorce. It's far more official. Another thing that um, is hard for us to grasp in today's world, but 
uh, as part of this illustration is that it would be a father's responsibility to protect and preserve his daughter for her husband. Maybe that's something we need to grasp a little further as fathers in our day and age. Getting our gals ready to be married to a godly man. Helping her train her taste. Helping our boys be that kind of man. But anyway, this is the kind of illustration Paul is using. I betrothed you to one husband. So he's getting the church ready to get married. And who's she going to marry? Jesus. That's the kind of devotion she's supposed to have for her husband, Jesus. I be, I, you're like my daughter, Paul says. He actually says this in 1 Corinthians 4.15. Though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. I became your father in Christ through the gospel. What he's saying is when I came to you and I preached the gospel to you and you believed it, I'm your spiritual dad, you're my spiritual daughter, and you're engaged to Jesus. I don't know if you can try to put it into today's experience. Uh, Say you're a parent. Uh, Say there's a war going on. Say uh, you have a daughter, you love her so much, and she's engaged to this awesome guy. Uh, He's in the military and he's gone, and it's, it's three years, it's four years. And then some sleazy jerk, you know, at the high school reunion or something, starts coming around, and you can see it. You can see it. He's danger. He's manipulative. He's using your daughter. He, he wants to mess with her. It's not sacrificial, it's not dignified, it's not noble. He uses people, and you see it, and you see her kind of giving him the, you know, kind of giving him the, wait, what? Who? You know? And what does your heart do for your daughter? You're like, nah, right? You're like, I can commit murder, do prison ministry from the inside. <laughs> no. No. Um, because you're jealous for her heart and what's best for her. It's kind of like that. Because he loves them. So first of all, what is his heart for the church? Jealous. Jealous. So that's the next lesson. I want you to be jealous for your own mind and your own heart when it comes to the gospel and your response. But let this land on you. That's not enough. And this is what so many people miss when it comes to their view on the local church. Guess who else you and I need to be jealous for? One another. And this is where the test really comes down. Do you really think the gospel and our response to it is most important? If you do, when you see a brother and sister start what? Flirting? With false gospels, whether it's worldliness or legalism, Jesus plus, when you see them start to believing that and you see their devotion to Christ, the stock is getting lower, what should stir up in our hearts for and about these people? A jealousy that doesn't really have anything to do with us. What do we want for them? Gosh, I want you to love Jesus. Remember, I asked you in the beginning, is there anything so important to you that you'd fight for? And I know if a criminal broke into your house and started 
threatening somebody in your family, let's do it. It's on. You defend yourself. You defend your people. Would we defend our people with the same vigor against false gospels? You tell me which one's worse. Getting murdered, it's horrible. Or leaving Christ for something else. Leaving Christ is worse. And so if our passion for a physical defense of the people we love would be high, why is our passion for a spiritual defense not as high? Let's look at Paul's example for how he responds. You know, when we think about defending people we love, we think of fights, all right? Um, I'm always like, ooh, I'd, I'd stand up and fight. I gotta be honest with you right now, I have never been in a fist fight in my entire life. Never. I have never been in a fist fight in my entire life. I'm sure I would win. <laughs> and you have no proof that I wouldn't because I've never been in a fist fight. The reason I raise this ridiculous illustration is because when we think of the fight, we imagine things that most of the time are not real, and we do not consider the things that are actually real. The way we fight as Christians, and this is a big deal, is never with a gun. It's never with a sword, because that kind of weapon can't even enter into the war we want to win. It doesn't work. It cannot work, because we're talking about things of the heart and of the mind, which means the way we always fight is with truth and love. Truth and love. We speak the truth in love. That's our weapon, according to the scriptures. Truth and love. And we see this in Paul. I'll just show you quickly. It's mostly in his world, but it plays with our world too. He's giving the church, I think, good questions on how to identify a bad boyfriend, if you'll follow my illustration. Who's the good husband in our illustration? Jesus. Who's the bad boyfriend in our illustration? False gospels. How do you recognize a bad boyfriend? First question, what are they winning you with? What are they winning you with? If we follow our illustration, hopefully a good husband wins you with character, self-sacrifice, honesty, faithfulness. A bad boyfriend wins you with a new car, a great haircut, slick dance moves. You see the difference? Hey, I'm a good husband, I have good dance moves. That's not what I'm talking about. What do they win you with? Same thing with churches. What do they win you with? If a church wins you with news that you'll be rich, what are they winning you with? Or if they win you with the truth of the gospel lived out, those are two different things. What are they winning you with? Look at what Paul says here in verses five to six. Paul says, indeed, I consider I'm not least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So if you want to be one with fancy speech tricks and abilities, go with the false teachers. But if you want real knowledge of God, Paul says, I might not be as blingy as them when I speak, but I will tell you the truth. Do you see what he's saying? So the red flag should go up on false gospels is what are they winning you with? What are they winning you with? 
And what is your heart like about it? Big question. Second thing, how to recognize a bad boyfriend. You following my illustration? How to, how to recognize a false gospel. How do they want to treat you? How do they want to treat you? Look at verses 7 to 11. Paul says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And then Paul says, and I'm not stopping. Here's how Paul worked. He was a missionary, and when he went to work with a church, he would never receive money from that church. When he went to work with the church, he was supported by other churches who sent him. So when he's with the church, it's free for them. When he leaves that church, that's when they pay so that they can support his ministry to other churches. So that he would always say when he was with a church, I'm here for free. I don't, you don't pay me for the gospel. The gospel comes free. And he wanted to do this to make himself explicitly different from all the other voices in that culture. It was normal for Corinthian philosophers and speakers to go visit some group and you would give them a big rich stipend for their speaking. And Paul wanted to draw a line in the sand and say, I am not like them. He wanted to say to every church he was working with, I am not here to use you, I am here to serve you. And then as he taught them that, he would train that, that church to join him in serving others. So he's still taking payment, just not from the people he's with. That's how he did his missionary work. And the false apostles were coming into Corinth and saying, Jesus, he doesn't even love us, he won't let us support him. And Paul says, I'm not changing. Why do you think the false apostles uh, cut, cut on Paul for that? You think they were working for free? Paul actually says later, man, when these people use you, you put up with it. When they ask you for big ticket prices, you put up with it. You pay it. And so the point is this. How does Paul want to treat the Corinthians? He wants to serve them at his own cost. How do the false gospels want to treat the Corinthians? They want to use him. It's good advice. Good husband wants to serve. A bad boyfriend wants to use. A false gospel, when you start to believe it, do they want to serve you, do they want to help you, or do they want to what? Use you, own you. Jesus was a serving king, isn't he? Gave up his life for us. So the third question, we saw what do they want from you, or are they, what are they winning you with? How do they want to treat you? Third one, where will it take you? We're, th we're thinking about recognizing false gospels. Where will it take you? Look at verse 12. And what I'm doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission work, they work on the same terms as we do. And here Paul brings it out, right? Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It's no surprise then if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Did he just drop the Satan word on us? Does that raise the intensity level on this whole issue? Who's really out there trying to get all the people in the world to flirt with false gospels? Who's behind all of it? It's a spiritual issue. It's satanic. And anybody who promotes false gospels as the ultimate hope, the ultimate identity, 
whether they know it or not, they're working for him. That's what this text says. They may not know it, but they're working for him. So you have an enemy. Does that help you want to hang on to the true gospel a little tighter? Okay, be a little more jealous. Another thing about Satan, what does he dress when he comes to your party? How does he, how does he look? He's got his big bat wings, fangs, drooling, sulfur. You know, his drool hits the ground and it steams. He speaks with some gnarly voice like, you know, like in the movies or something. Where, you, where you'd look at him, all the kids, everybody, we'd be like, he's bad. I don't know what he's selling, but he looks bad to me. You know, if Satan came out, like with the honest truth, hi, I'm Satan, I would like to ruin your present and future life, I would like for you to burn in hell with me forever, want to come? Most of us might be a little more forthright in shutting the door on his false gospels. But what does he wear? He looks like an angel. What kind of words does he use? He uses churchy, he uses churchy words. There are horrible cults out there that will say you need to believe and trust in Jesus so you can be saved. And they mean the exact opposite of what you and I mean when we say the very same words. He comes as an angel of light. Come on, watch any commercial. Does any commercial actually say to you, we have marked this up so much, it's totally ridiculous. If you buy this car, you're a fool. You could get a better car, a used car. It'll last you just as long. You can pay a third of the price. Our product doesn't do anything we're, we're, we're telling you it does in this commercial. Does anybody ever say that? No, they say, if you drink this Bud Light or wear this Axe body spray, women will be into you. It's the gospel. Finally, the good news. I could never get a woman by myself. But now I can't. Yeah. Lies. Satan comes dressed up, looking and sounding good. What does that mean for you and me? You better have your thinking cap on. You better know the real gospel. You better know what devotion to Jesus looks like, and the question for here is, Paul says their end will correspond to their deeds. A thing, uh, the bad boyfriend, he wants you to live for now. If you follow my illustration, he wants you to live for now. Oh baby, if you just loved me, you'd live for now, Pepsi. Live for now. The good husband says, I'm with you for your good to the end. And you look at false gospels here and they're like, live for now, live for this world, live for this, and guess where it'll take you? Every false gospel. Destruction. Loss. And you look at the true husband, the Lord Jesus, what does he say to you? I'm in it to win it. All the way to the end. So, do you see what Paul's doing here? In his heart, he feels jealousy for the church. And his strategy is truth and love. It's truth and love. He's telling them the truth. He's trying to show them the real gospel versus the false, and he's doing it in love, saying, I'm coming here for free. I'm yours. I'm like a father to you. I'm here for you. I love you. I care about you. I am devoted to you. So let's back up. We're almost done. What's the most important thing, period? The gospel in our response to it. The gospel is never Jesus plus, and it won't be found in the comforts of this world. 
the gospel is Jesus alone. The more you trust in Jesus and see his love for you, what kind of a response will it bring? Devotion. Devotion, where you want to live for him at any cost. You, you love him. You say, I'm yours. But temptations will come. Flirts will come. False gospels will come. And when you hear that false gospel, you see it diminishing devotion to Jesus, what should you feel in your heart? Jealousy. Not just for your own heart, please for your own heart, but not just for your own heart. Also, for whom? Anybody you love at all. Your children, your family, your friends, your local church. So what does this mean for us then as we close? There's no huge commands in here in this passage for the church other than it's pretty obvious the church in Corinth needs to trust Paul and the gospel he's sharing of Jesus, right? So I want to give you four principles I think that comes from this passage. Number one, remember God's jealousy. Remember God's jealousy. Look at Exodus 34, 14. What does God say about himself? You shall worship no other God. I I'm a husband to you. We don't do boyfriends, right? No other God for the Lord whose name is what? Jealous. He names himself jealous, is a jealous God. So let me ask you, what does God want from you today? Everything. Total devotion. Does he deserve anything less than that? He wants total devotion. Aren't you kind of amazed he's even interested? Why do you care if I'm devoted to you? I'm nothing. He wants your devotion. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He cares what you think and what you feel and how you live. He wants all of you. And what did he do to get it? He sent his son to buy you with his blood. If there's anything, do we serve an apathetic God? Do we serve a bored God? Do we serve a God who eh, could care less? This God scares us with how passionate he is. And he wants all of us, and he gave all of us to have us through his son. Remember God's jealousy. This reminds us, if your Christian life is casual, you look at Jesus, he paid for my sins, I don't go off to hell, now I do whatever I want. We might be getting it wrong. Remember God's jealousy. Second, be jealous for your own heart. We covered that. To whom are you devoted? Third, we covered this too. Be jealous for others. Be jealous for your church. Did you see what Paul said? I think it was verse 11. He said, I love you. When you talk about this church, what do you say? Don't tell me right now. I'd... But what do you say? Do you say, man, I love that church. I love the people in the church. Do you feel it? Do you feel love for the people in the church? And I mean all of them. Here's where you might find a false gospel if you look. I like them all except for that person. They're obnoxious. Yeah, what if Jesus treated us with that same kind of standard? Who would get loved in here? Nobody. 
Nobody. So if we are loved by Jesus, grace alone, how should we love one another? I love my church. That doesn't mean our love is blind. We're perfect. No, no. But I love my church. We're loved. I hope you speak that way about your church, and you should. Isn't that a good witness to the world at large? How do they know we belong to Jesus? By our love? Easy thing to do. Church, what's up? I love my church. I love these people. How do you do it? Speak the truth and serve generously. The truth and love. Let's end with this question. It's a fundamental question for every, for every church all the time. Are we nice people with a religious hobby? Is that who we are? We need to figure this out. Are you a nice person with a religious hobby? Couple Sundays a month, talk about Jesus, rest of your life, nice person. Is that devotion to Christ? Or are we people who know the gospel and Jesus' love for us, and it's changed us. And we want to be devoted to him in everything. And because of that, we're jealous for our hearts for him, and we're jealous for one another. Let's remember God's jealousy for us. Be jealous for him. Amen? Let's pray. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to pray in silence right now. Then we're going to take up the offering. I want you to pray. A lot of times the prayer after a sermon is kind of like a transition I actually want you to pray. I want you to talk to God right now, and I want, him, I want, I want you to ask him that you'd be devoted to him, and I, and I want you to ask him to, to show you what jealousy for your heart and for others would mean in your place, your time, your relationships right now. But let's pray. I'll begin. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that it's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus alone. Lord, we want to be devoted to you. We want to be jealous rightfully for those we love. Show us how, we pray. In Jesus' name. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.